Hey, Max, I've got good news and bad news. Okay. The good news is today's book has voodoo that isn't culturally appropriative. What's the bad news? There's still pedophilia. (laughs) Okay. Welcome to Second to Die, the horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Cole. And I'm Max. And uh, before we get to your pedophilia... Hey, hey, no, no. There is so much more to the story. (laughs) Do you want to talk about that now or are you going to wait until it's your turn? I'm still going to wait until it's my turn. I just don't want you to phrase it that way. Okay. Well, we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, I am going to talk about a movie that is getting me into the fall season as it's sort of quickly approaching, even though it's like a billion degrees here. So this week, I'm talking about the 1988 film Pumpkinhead. Ooh. It is a creature feature, which I think might be the first one that I've done so far on this show. I think so. And... Obviously, I'm not going to talk a lot about that genre. I feel like it's self-explanatory. Everybody knows what a creature feature is. Yeah. And I like them. So I decided to do this one. It's pretty well known. It didn't do that well on release, to be honest. But it's kind of developed a cult following, which has kind of happened to a good amount of movies, especially movies from the 80s. Yeah. So this movie was directed by Stan Winston. He was actually a special effects guy known specifically for his work on Terminator, the first three Jurassic Park movies, Aliens, and also, interestingly enough, Edward Scissorhands, and a lot of other movies. He won four Academy Awards for his special effects work, and this was his directorial debut. So, essentially, he was actually contacted about this film in regards to possibly doing the creature effects, but he saw the script and decided that he thought it would be a great project to do his directorial debut, and they accepted it, and he did it. The original title of the film was Vengeance, the Demon. That's very different. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of comes into play a little bit later. But the reason that it wasn't called Pumpkinhead at first is because Pumpkinhead was actually inspired by a poem. And I don't necessarily know that they knew about the poem before the script was written. So at some point, they decided to call it Pumpkinhead. The poem was written by Ed Justin. It has nothing to do with the movie, but it's a creepy poem. And if you'd like, I could read it for you. Is it public domain? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know. We'll post a link to the poem in the description. (laughs) So if you'd like, you can read the poem online. (laughs) But you can read it to me now. We'll just Uh, cut it. Sure. Oh, boy. Yeah, so it's pretty cute. So... Like I said before, the movie wasn't super well received when it came out, but it gained following and in just as an example of sort of how it got a little more popular afterwards, it didn't bomb. I'll say that much. I believe the movie had something like a $3 million budget and in a limited release still made like $4 million. It's just in Hollywood making a million dollars is not good, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But in a 1992 retrospective, the Los Angeles Times, a critic from that, described it as a well-executed film in a genre that is littered with dim-witted slasher flicks. 
Which is kind of rude because I like dim-witted slasher flicks. I was going to say. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of them, but they sound fun. Yeah. So it's pretty good. It's made a few lists in since then. Things like most underrated horror movies of all time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's doing pretty well on a lot of the review sites. Things like Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Fangoria included it in its 101 best horror movies you've never seen. Things like that. That being said, the movie did spawn a sequel, but it went directly to video called Pumpkinhead 2 Blood Wings. And then two additional sequels that were made for TV movies titled Pumpkinhead Ashes to Ashes and Pumpkinhead Blood Feud. So basically, it's all downhill from number one. (laughs) Yeah, essentially. And weirdly enough, so the made for TV movies were both shot in 2006. And I think they showed on sci-fi or something like that but significantly later than the original ones. So, I don't know. The main character is Lance Henriksen. He plays the main guy named Ed Hardley. Lance Henriksen is very well known, especially in the horror and sci-fi community. He was what I would most recognize him for. What He played Bishop in Aliens, but he's been in numerous other things. He also did some voice acting. He voice acted Admiral Stephen Hackett in Bioware's Mass Effect series, which... You know, I love. Yes. Oh, yes, I do. Though I have no (laughs) idea who that character is, and I have not seen Aliens, so I don't know who this person is. Yeah, so he's... I almost feel like if you saw his face, you would recognize him. But that being said, he had just kind of an interesting life. I'm not going to go through all of it, obviously, but I will say he dropped out of school after the first grade, served in the Navy from 1955 to 58... Then around age 30, started working for a theater company doing set design and was given his first role because he built a set for the production. When he was given the role, he was illiterate and had to teach himself how to read and eventually graduated from the actor's studio and began acting in New York. So he's sort of like a self-made situation. Oh, he sounds like a sweet baby angel. Yeah. Oh, he's also a muralist. He, He like paints murals. And I guess he has a website. You can go look and see his artwork. Oh, I didn't do that, but I'm sure it's great. Everyone needs a hobby. Yes. He <laughs> he also in interviews has said that he is very proud of the original Pumpkinhead movies. He was also included in the two made-for-TV movie sequels, but in an interview described his embarrassment in his involvement by saying that the movies were so shitty and that in a special movie theater screening of the sequels that was supposed to have a Q&A afterwards... He snuck out by crawling on his hands and knees through the theater because he said he could not bear to face the audience afterward. Wow. So I haven't seen those, but they sound great. Yikes. Yeah. There's also a reboot of the series that's reported to be in production by Saw executive producer Peter Block. Not the guy who did Repo. uh, Someone else. And he told Entertainment Weekly that... They have somebody writing the script, and that filming would begin in 2017. As of today, there has been no development on that reboot. Oh, boy. So he plays the main character. The I guess really quick, I'll just run through the cast, just because I feel like it's probably good to mention the actors who portray these characters, even if I don't care about them. So there's character Joel, played by John DeKino, character Chris, played by Jeff East, Maggie, played by Carrie Remsen. Kim, played by Kimberly Ross. That must have been easy to respond to. (laughs) Yeah. Steve, played by Joel Hoffman. Tracy, by Cynthia Bain. The character of this old witch, who I'll mention her name when we get to her, played by Florence Schoeffer. 
Bunt, played by Brian Bremer, and Pumpkinhead, the creature himself, was played by Tom Woodruff Jr., who was one of the special effects guys, and he manned the suit, basically. So, I know nothing about this movie. Correct. But, in my mind, Pumpkinhead is in, like, a onesie (laughs) that's, like, overstuffed with straw coming out at, like, the wrists and ankles, and has a jack-o'-lantern for a head. And he kind of, like, toddles about, like, a very uncoordinated small child, except he's full-sized. It is not like that at all. Well, then I'm already disappointed. (laughs) He is... He's a true creature. He looks very alien. He's kind of gangly. He's got a tail. Are pumpkins involved? (laughs) Okay, so... Yes, is the answer to that. The reason that he's called Pumpkinhead in the movie is, or the reason they call him that is because his remains are kept in this graveyard, which is in an old pumpkin patch that is filled with all these like rotten, spooky looking pumpkins. I mean, he also has a big head. I'm not impressed. There's a missed opportunity here. Now I know why the subsequent movies didn't do very well. Yeah, but this one did. And I mean, I don't think that like creature names have to be super literal. No. Necessarily. Although maybe. So that's that. Okay. Are you ready to start talking about this movie? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Please do. But what happens? Okay. So picture it. It begins 1957 on a farm. I know exactly what that felt like. I was there. Yeah. So Basically, the first scene is a flashback scene to show the childhood of the main character, Ed Harley. Uh, It's a pretty good scene, but long story short, the family is seen at nighttime locking their door. Some guy is banging on it, trying to get in, but Ed's parents are kind of like us when anybody is at our door. They're like having none of it. So they don't answer and they pretend they're not home. You say us, you will actually, like, respond, I actively hide. Yeah, well, it kind of depends if I'm expecting, like, a package or something. True. You know. Package. <laughs> then I'm all super into it. But, okay, so the guy outside is clearly in trouble, but they're ignoring him and ignoring his pleas. Ultimately, he ends up getting killed by this creature that, at this point, we only see in silhouette from the eyes of Ed looking out his window. So, as a kid, he kind of sees this. And sees this guy get sort of brutally murdered by this creature silhouette situation. Oh, that sounds kind of cool, like, visually. Yeah, visually it's probably cool. And I'm sure his therapist will love to hear about it in about 15 years. So, it's actually it's actually super well done. To be honest, the visuals of this movie, the cinematography, and I'll kind of talk about it in my recap a little bit, are impressive given the times, to be honest. Comparatively to other movies I've done in the late 80s, well, done for the podcast and just seen in my life, it's much less cheesy and you don't have this feeling of I'm watching a really low-budget movie the whole time. Yeah. Even though there are people who describe this as a B-movie, but the production value seems way higher than any sort of B-movie I've seen. Okay. Anyway, so then we flash to Ed all grown up. I don't know exactly how much time has passed because Lance Henriksen is kind of... He has one of those faces that it's like, you could tell me that he's 30 or 50 and I would probably just believe it. Not in like a bad way. He's, I mean, to be honest, he's actually kind of like a DILF, but I don't mean that in a like he has like an old face or anything like that. I'm, I'm just trying to set the timeline for this movie, okay? So we don't know how long it's been, but he does have a kid. 
And the kid, I'm really bad with kids' ages, but I'm going to guess he's maybe like four or five. Also, to put this scene into perspective and like where we are in the setting, it's a very, very rural, rural town. People are super poor. Like there are like goats tied up to like fences poor. And it's like everyone wears like wide brimmed hats is super dusty and only wears beige and brown tones and uses like very, very bad grammar. There's also this like weird scene that I'll mention it, (laughs) but Ed basically like washes his son's hands in like an outdoor wash bin. And I don't really know. I guess this is just to introduce the characters and show bonding or something. But there's this weird part where Ed is like, my grandma used to wash my hands like this. Her skin was so thin, it felt like tissue paper. It felt so good. And it made me kind of uncomfortable in like a weird way. Yeah, no. Mm-mm. Anyway, so the kid makes him this necklace. Kind of comes into play later, but it's not really as important as I thought it would be, but it didn't bother me. Um. Also, their dog is named Gypsy, so we're going to just ignore that. So anyways, the plot starts getting rolling because there are these six city folk teenagers who kind of roll into town with bad attitudes. Well, I mean, basically, yes. <laughs> like, one of them has his girlfriend, like, open a beer while he's driving, and he wears a leather jacket, so he's, like, a badass. Oh, he's so cool. Yeah, he's real edgy. Uh, except one of the other ones is wearing legitimately a sweatband on his head, and he is not in the gym, so that's not okay. Is it okay in the gym? <laughs> I mean... Maybe in the 80s. Maybe. Oh, my God. Remember the sweatband guy at, who goes to our gym? Oh, my God. Yes. Sweatband undershirt guy. Oh, my. Ugh. I wonder how he's doing. <sighs> Hopefully he finds other people to annoy. Anyway. Okay. So, basically, the teenagers stop at this country store, which also happens to be the store that Ed runs. And so, Ed and his kid are there. The teenagers are there. So, while at that store... There's this group of local kids, and they mention the legend of Pumpkinhead, who settles all bad things or something. They actually start sort of quoting lines from the poem that inspired it, the one that I read you. And they're sort of teasing one of these other kids and kind of trying to scare him. Interestingly enough, one of those local kids is uh, Maya Bialik from Blossom. It is her first role in a feature film, and that is the only part of the film that she's in. None of those kids are important. From Blossom? Yeah, it was a show. She's also on Big Bang Theory. I'll take your word for it. Oh my god. I'm aware of Big Bang Theory, but I have no idea what Blossom is. Okay, so long story short, one of the city kids named Joel, the one with the leather jacket, ends up hitting Ed's son with a dirt bike. The kid is super injured, and they all run away except for Steve, who stays back, I guess, to, I don't know, tell the kid's dad that he got hit. And at first you think he's dead, but then he's kind of not dead, but then he dies shortly after. So basically, long story short, this kid dies. The like four to five year old? Yeah. Oh boy. Mm -hmm. Movies usually don't kill off the kids. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's effective. It sets up the whole tone because, well, because of what I'm about to tell you. (laughs) So uh, Ed spirals a little bit because his kid just died. So he goes to this local family and asks about this woman that he heard that has some sort of powers that lives in the mountains. The father of the family is like, I can't help you find her. He clearly can. He's just choosing not to. 
And as that is leaving, the guy's kid, who is named Bunt. Like the cake. Like the cake. Comes up and is basically like, I know who you're looking for. And so Ed is like, I'll give you $10 if you show me. And so he basically does. So he takes Ed up the mountain and shows him this cabin where this woman lives. (laughs) The woman, by the way, is this sort of old crone-like character. Her name is Haggis. Because I guess Witchy McWitcherson was too on the nose for this movie. What is it with people having food names? We've got Bunt. We've got Haggis. Yeah, actually, I didn't even think about that. I was just thinking it was like, clearly she's a hag. They're calling her Haggis. Oh, trying Haggis is on my bucket list. So maybe that's why. I'm hungry. (laughs) When aren't you hungry? Her house is like... (laughs) Made of of gingerbread? It's not it's not made of gingerbread. It's actually like really kind of spooky and it's got a lot of like spider webs and stuff and also like giant tarantulas crawling all over the place. Fuck that. Yeah, Cole's afraid of spiders for everybody who doesn't know that. Really fucking afraid of spiders. No thank you. <sighs> in fact, it's one of our earliest stories. I went over and killed a wolf spider at like three in the morning for him. It was five. <laughs> Called me out of nowhere. We had been on, like, not even a real date, I don't think, at that point. I think we'd been on, like, one or two. It was a big spider. It wasn't a little spider. It was a huntsman spider. And they moved very fast. I drove over in the middle of the night. Uh, No, it was the morning. Just early. That 5 a.m. is the night for most people on this planet. It was dark outside. I will admit to that. It was a big spider. It was, like, the size of a bowl. (laughs) I'm not going to comment on that. It was big. I will say that. But and also before people say anything, I normally don't really kill animals and stuff. But if it's like a spider that invades my house, that's look, if you're going to step into the arena, you better be prepared to fight. That's all I'm going to say about that. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So basically, let's get back to this. So Ed goes in and he's carrying his dead son's body and the woman is immediately like, I can't do anything about that. How much time has passed? This is the same day. Oh, okay. So in my mind, he had like a month long mental break and then did this. So I was like, oh, Jesus. No, he he's acting very um, spontaneously. Like you do. Yeah. And that's probably why he doesn't make the best of decisions. So anyways, the woman is like, raising people from the dead is not in my power. Except she's also got this like, kind of like, okie smoky accent. So she's like, that's not in my power. Anyway. I don't know how okie smoky that was, but <laughs> they keep going. Well, it's kind of like these, like, the whole thing, the whole town has this like, hills have eyes kind of vibe. Yeah. You know, so anyways. Well, I don't know, but. <laughs> okay. So anyway. So then he basically is like, well, I want you to get this creature. I know it exists. I saw it as a kid and I want you to get my revenge. The woman basically is like, okay, that's cool. Go dig up this grave in the old pumpkin graveyard. So he does it and he brings back this like sort of desiccated body situation. It doesn't look like a human. It looks like a creature, but it's very like dried up and and whatever and brings it to the woman She basically is like, there's a special price for this power. He asks what it is, and she says, this is just interesting, and it's the lore of the movie, so I thought it would be cool. 
She basically says that for each of man's evils, there's a special demon, and this one is vengeance, cruel vengeance. So that's why the original title of the movie was Vengeance the Demon. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Also, I appreciate the fact that for once, when someone is like, this comes at a price, the character wasn't like, I don't care what the price is. I'll do anything. He was like, okay, hold on. What is it? Oh, no. He said, I don't care. I'll do anything. Fuck me. (laughs) So basically, she has to use some of his blood and some blood from his dead kid's corpse to resurrect this demon. And she does. And the demon comes to life and then skedaddles away. Oh, Awesome. The end. Everyone lives happily ever after, except the six kids. (laughs) Exactly. Cut to 20 years later. The demon is an author living in the shores of England. (laughs) Now, um, so then basically the demon proceeds to kill off the city kids one by one. Also worth noting, because it's important, is basically every time the demon catches a kid, it flashes to Ed and he gets like a dizzy spell And it very much so is indicating some sort of connection that him and the demon share at this point. Okay. You don't know what it is. Also, the woman who says this comes at a great price, she never does say what the great price is. So much like what your issue is. Of course she doesn't. You don't know. So you're kind of left wondering why is he experiencing all these things? It almost seemed like the creature to me was drawing energy from him and like was slowly killing him as it was doing that. That is not what happened in this movie, and so that's fine. Okay, so I'm not going to describe all of the death scenes in this movie because, well, for time, and because I'm really trying to not have to do that all the time, but there is this one really great part where the creature basically killed this girl, Maggie, and it's this great part because the other kids are hiding in the cabin, and he basically takes her, like, palming her head like a basketball and starts rubbing her face pressed up against the window in front of the kids like rubbing it it's like really morbid and creepy and also like i don't know i thought it was really funny like my jaw literally dropped because it's you don't often see in horror movies where the killers are like taunting people with like dead bodies i guess oh so she's dead she's more or less dead she dies very shortly after that part okay But she's, like, all bloody-faced and, like, limp. But then he ends up, I think, like, throwing her through the window or something. And she dies from that. Yeah. Like you do. Yeah. It was was pretty good. Okay. So, anyways, at this point, for some reason, Ed starts to feel bad about the kids getting killed. Even though they killed his son. And also because that kid wears a headband. He tries to go to the woman to get her to stop. Because he's like, no, this is wrong. And the woman's like, no, you can't do that. So then he's like, well, I'm going to go save these kids. There are only two left at this point. Better late than pregnant. Yeah. Also, Bunt has decided that he's going to go try to help the kids because he also wants to see if the creature is real. Because they all know about this creature from local legend. But he's like, I want to see if this thing is real. I don't know. Is Bunt white? Everybody in this movie is white. It's 1988. Oh, okay. Anyway. So, Ed... And Bunt eventually meet up with the kids. At this point, I'll just say Tracy is the only person left uh, out of the city kids. And they end up going to Ed's house and the creature follows them. So now we're towards the end scene of the movie. Obviously, I've skipped over a lot of this. There's a lot more to be to be had. So anyways, 
Ed realizes that him and the creature are linked because he accidentally walks into a pitchfork, which I guess just jumps out of nowhere. It's really weird how it happens, but the pitchfork like stabs his shoulder and the creature flinches as if it's been stabbed in the shoulder. Also worth noting, and to be honest, I only really know this because I read that they had tried to do this, but they did kind of change the creature's face progressively in the movie to try to resemble Ed's face structurally a little more. It's semi-successful. If I had not read that this was intentionally done, I would not have caught it. Oh, okay. Because the creature doesn't look humanoid. It's it's very alien looking, but they do try to, the general sort of jaw structure of Ed, they try to make the creature kind of mimic him a little bit. It's cool if you know what's happening. I'll say that. They tried. Yeah. So Ed realizes the connection that he has with this creature, physically at least, and then he goes to his car, grabs a gun, and shoots himself in the head. The creature falls down, and Ed falls down, but he's not dead. I don't know how this happened. He literally has a bullet wound on essentially the temple of his head, but he's not dead. So, usually, I don't know, usually a shot to the head is no joke, but this is a horror movie, so I guess it doesn't matter. So then Tracy grabs the gun, and Ed is, like, telling her to kill him, and so she does. And shoots him a few times. The creature goes down. Then for some reason, the creature bursts into flame. I don't know why. It just does. So (laughs) the creature is on fire. There's no fire involved, by the way. And so then it leaves Tracy and Bunt as the only survivors. Which is fine. Tracy was fine. Bunt honestly was kind of like a sweet baby angel. Even though he was so stupid for even trying to help these people. And he didn't bring cake. (laughs) He didn't bring cake. So then the final, final shot of the movie is actually the old lady haggis burying the creature. The creature has sort of morphed back into this desiccated thing, the the exact same thing that Ed brought her originally. Yeah. She's burying it back in the old pumpkin graveyard. And then ominously, it like shows a close up on the creature and the creature is wearing the necklace that Ed had. And that's the final thing. And then it cuts to the credits. I don't know if it's trying to say that the creature is Ed or that somehow the necklace shows a connection. Ed was wearing that necklace when he died. So I don't know if they're trying to suggest that maybe the creature did burn up and now Ed's corpse is the creature and he's the new vengeance demon. But all I could think of is, well, they use him in two more sequels, so that can't be how it is. But maybe if you look at it as a standalone, maybe that's what it's supposed to mean. I guess you'll have to watch the sequels and find out. That's probably not going to (laughs) happen. Just... You know, full disclosure. <laughs> okay, so final thoughts on this movie. This movie is pretty solid, to be honest. The special effects are great. Like I said, for its time, it makes sense because Stan Winston was known for his special effects. I mean, the effects in, in Aliens was great. I would expect that out of Stan Winston just because that's what he's known for. But I mean, even by 1988 standards, the creature looked good. And I mean, you know me, like I can be a bit of sort of like a graphics and special effects snob sometimes. I mean, I like cheesy horror effects in the right setting, but this is not one of those times that I would say this is so cheesy, it's good. It was actually just well done. So that was kind of nice. One of the best things about this movie by far are definitely the death scenes. It's kind of like, I didn't describe them all kind of on purpose because you really have to watch them to get the full effect. And I want people to want to watch this movie, but like the rubbing the face against the window is a good example There's another part where when he kills the character of Kim, he basically like goes up into this really tall tree and he's holding her by the head and she's like alive, like squirming. And it's a very, very tall tree. And he waits until the other kids like come out and then just drops her right in front of them to her death. It's like he does all these like super like cold hearted, petty death scenes. 
they're very good. Every single death scene, I was like, oh, wow. Like, it was good. So that's what I'll say. You should watch this movie, if nothing else, just to kind of see them, because I'm not going to tell you all about them. The storyline is pretty solid. I thought that the creature being linked to Ed wasn't like a surprise, but I don't think it was meant to be. I mean, they hint at it, but considering the fact that like my initial guess about what was happening was wrong was refreshing. Yeah. Especially after doing Don't Hang Up last week, where I knew literally everything that was going to happen in that movie after the first like two seconds. So I do think it's worth a watch. I think people will be pleasantly surprised at how enjoyable it is. If you're somebody who's like, I don't like old movies from the 80s because they always look so dumb or cheesy or whatever i promise you this one is one of the better ones it has good cinematography the ambience the acting is actually quite good and so yeah i can't really say that much more about it it's is it the best thing i've ever seen no but it is something that i would strongly suggest people watch and to be truthful i don't really say that that much on these movies that i do for this podcast so so yeah i was surprised i was hesitant going into it and full disclosure, I've seen a lot of movies. I had actually not seen Pumpkinhead before. I knew about it, but I didn't watch it for... I think the reason that I keep telling people that you should watch it if you're hesitant is because I didn't watch it thinking it was just going to be this really dumb 80s creature feature that like had this animatronic, crappy-looking creature. And it really wasn't that. So anyways, that's my movie for this week. What are you going to talk about? All right. So this week... My book, as much as I made my jokes about it at the beginning, it was actually quite good. Uh, this week, I am doing The Good House by Tanana Reeve Du. And yes, I looked up how to say her name. That's a name. It is a name. I wanted to be respectful. She is extremely well known in the horror community, particularly as a horror author of color. She is one of the commentators on the Shudder documentary Horror Noir. Oh, which is all about, like, black horror, obviously. So, yeah, she's really well-known. The Good House was published in 2003, and just like last week, it was another whopper of a book clocking in at just under 600 pages, so it has been a busy couple of weeks for me. (laughs) Yeah. The cover of the book is pretty simple. It is a house on a hill, and the house is pretty much exactly how the house in the book is described. Uh, there's even like a tree in the backyard that I'm not really going to talk about much, but does factor into the story for some odd reason. I feel like I remember when I was preparing to start reading this, finding a social media post or something where there was a picture of an actual house that this is based on, but I did some Google searching and I couldn't find it again. So either I imagined it, or I dreamed it, or it was about a different book that I was reading, and I just forgot. Yeah. I mean, you're always reading. I I like the cover of it. I like simple covers. Yeah. And also, for people listening who haven't figured this out, if you want to see these covers without having to search for them, we do post the covers of the books as well as the movie posters on our Instagram and Twitter, which are both Second to Die Pod. So if you do want to see them as we're talking... and you didn't find us through one of those outlets, then you can go check there. Yeah. And I was a little disappointed that I couldn't find a house that this was specifically based on because, as you know, I love when authors base their books in actual houses, which is why I'm obsessed with the houses in New Orleans that Anne Rice has written into her books. It's like going to a movie set. I love it. (laughs) 
But anyway, let me go ahead and read you the blurb. The house Angela Toussaint's late grandmother owned is so beloved that the townspeople of Sacagawea. Wait, the town is named Sacagawea? Yes, it's named Sacagawea. I don't actually know if it's real. I should have Googled that before I did this. Sacagawea, Washington. Call it the good house. But is it? Angela hoped her grandmother's famous healing magic could save her failing marriage while she and her family lived in the old house in the summer of 2001. Instead, an unexpected tragedy ripped Angela's family apart. Now, two years later, Angela is moving past her grief and taking control of her life as a talent agent in Los Angeles, and she is finally ready to revisit the rural house she loved so much as a child. Back in Sacagawea, Angela realizes she hasn't been the only one to suffer a shocking loss. Since she left, there have been more senseless tragedies, and Angela wonders if they are related somehow. Could the events be linked to a terrifying entity Angela's grandmother battled in 1929? Did her teenage son, Corey, reawaken something that should have been left sleeping? With the help of Miles Fisher, her high school boyfriend, and clues from beyond the grave, Angela races to solve a deadly puzzle that has followed her family for generations. She must summon her own hidden gifts to face the timeless adversary stalking her in her grandmother's house and in the Washington woods. Okay. I mean, that sounds good. If I saw that as a synopsis, I would be intrigued. Kind of sounds like a haunted housey situation. It is. It was so good. Before we get further into it, content warning. This book does talk frankly about suicide. I feel like almost every single book that I do has some sort of IRS plot point, incest, rape, suicide, which makes me really concerned for the horror genre as a whole. But anyway, uh, so the book opens up with kind of two different chapters that set the scene for the entire remainder of the story. The first is back in 1929 when a mudslide hit the town of Sacagawea. During this mudslide, men from town bring a girl who was possessed to Marie Toussaint's house, begging for her help, even though they were all super racist and had been treating her like shit for years. I feel like that happens like that quite often. Oh, because I forgot Marie is a voodoo practitioner from New Orleans. I kind of, to be honest, when you said that her name was Marie Toussaint, I was kind of like thinking in my head, I bet you this character is some sort of like old wise woman from New Orleans. And she is. Not like old wise woman. And actually, uh, when I was doing some research about it, there were several people who were raised in the tradition of voodoo who were like, this book was such a breath of fresh air because for once we're not like some sort of crazy devil worshiper enemy. Like it's actually well done. I obviously am not a part of that community. Voodoo is a closed religion. And so I don't know for sure about the accuracy, but I saw several interviews with people who said that it was. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't know the inner workings of it, but you do. I mean, I've lived in New Orleans for a very long time and you do see it here. I mean, they have celebrations like the voodoo community has local celebrations. So you kind of see a little bit of it. We probably have a different view of voodoo in New Orleans in general, I would say. That's a little bit less Hollywoodified. Yeah. If you want to say it like that. Anyways. Anyway, 
Um, so they brought this possessed girl and because she is a good person, she was like, there was even a point where she was like, okay, the sheriff is carrying this girl in. The sheriff is the reason why there are buckshot holes on my fucking front door, but I'm still going to help her. Cause she's a, Marie was a great person. Anyway. So she goes into the exorcism knowing that there will be difficulties, like just somehow intuitively knowing And that's the end of the scene. So that kind of sets that for the background. Then we jump forward to 2001. And it is a 4th of July party. Angela is staying there with her estranged husband. They have not gotten a divorce, but they were separated. And their son, Corey. And before the party starts, Corey comes in and he's like, I have a confession to make. I stole your grandmother's ring, which is this ring that has like mysterious West African symbols around it. And he's like, I stole this ring a long time ago and gave it to a girl because I thought it would impress her. But then she kept it. And when I stole the ring, I made it look like someone broke into our house. And I'm really, really sorry. I wrote her. She gave me the ring back. Here's the ring. Which was weird, but she was so excited to get the ring back that she didn't really question it. As he's leaving, though, he turns and gives her this really, like, fucking creepy smile and says, I'm going to take care of you good. Which does not sound like a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) But shortly after that, in the midst of the swing of the party, there is a gunshot and Corey has shot himself in the basement. Oh. Surprise. That's, yeah, that's kind of a mood killer for a party. It's not really, like, a surprise for the reader, though. I guess what it actually is, is the surprise. But the chapter literally opens with something, this is a paraphrase, something along the lines of, it was a 4th of July party, but no one remembered the party. They just remembered how it ended. So, like, yeah, that's, like, literally the first line of that chapter. You know something's coming. So now we fast forward to more years. We are in 2003. Angela has a successful talent agency and her best friend is also her star client. It's a woman named Naomi. And Angie is considering, she goes by Angie and Angela and I might go back and forth. Sorry, it's just the way I took my notes. Uh, She's considering selling the house and Naomi is like, no, no, you should go back first. Like, you know, you should make sure that you have full closure before you sell this house. And that's when shit hits the fan. So Naomi actually comes with her and Naomi's dog starts going nuts basically from the get go. And honestly, that should have been their first sign. Like it's it's time to go. I feel like it's such a common use thing. Like dogs go nuts. Like people should really listen to dogs. They are our friends and they care about our well-being. I mean, it's like if a cat stared at the ceiling in the exact same spot every single day, like it's probably a good idea to avoid that. I mean, our cat does that constantly. She stares out the front door, which is glass. (laughs) She's staring at things. We just may not be able to see them. So before I get into much more, I'm going to what is essentially jumping ahead in the book, but back to 2001 for the explanation of part of the haunting where we have eventually found out that Corey found a spell book of Marie's. They call her grandma Marie at this point. 
And in an attempt to bring back something that is lost, the ring, because him giving it to a girl who kept it actually was the true story. He brings back the demon that Marie had exercised back in 1929. Why, you ask? You didn't ask, but you it wasn't really a logical place for you to ask. But my notes say why you ask. Because Marie's book says that you should cleanse your ritual space first, and he did not. That's right. The result of this is that he put out an offering for Papa Legba, and it was taken by the demon. And kids, I know that witchy shit is really big right now, but please cleanse your space. It's Witchcraft 101. I know. Even Sephora sells sage. That's a bad decision right there. We all make choices. Anyway. Also, can I just say, too, that Papa Legba in American Horror Story, they made Papa Legba out to be this, like, honestly, kind of racist, like, bad person. He's not a bad person in the voodoo religion. No, he's literally just the person who communicates between a practitioner and the gods. Yeah, he's a gatekeeper between the spirit world and the regular world. I don't know. It was, it irked me about that show. Not that I have anything against American Horror Story, but, like... That irked me. I don't know. You were in American Horror Story. (laughs) I I was in American Horror Story. The back of your head. Anyway, so this demon feeds on death. So it makes people kill themselves and others. For example, Angie's neighbor walked into a moving truck, smiling at the driver the whole time. Hmm. But the main one that I want to talk to you about is the mayor. Mayor Art. Or Uncle Art as he likes for his wife to call him. Wait, what? Not to kink shame. I'm not kink shaming here, but also at the same time, it's a little creepy. I'm sorry. Is he actually her uncle? No. Oh, okay. No, but his favorite fantasy is to pretend that she is his niece and he is her confidant. And after she confesses things to him, he, how do I have it written in my notes? Uh, Molests and defiles her. She even says that when she wants to get something from him, she acts like a little girl because, quote, he can't resist it. And he calls her Munchkin, which normally wouldn't be creepy. Like, if you called me Munchkin, I'd be like, yeah, I'm shorter than you, and I'm a small human in general. But given that he's like, oh, yeah, call me Uncle Art Munchkin. Mm -mm." You know, I'm going to reserve comment on all that. It's that gray area of, like... We don't know if he's actually a pedophile. It might just be a power play and we shouldn't kink shame, but also it's kind of creepy at the same time. Yeah. It's a gray area. There I don't even know how much of this is gonna is gonna make it into this episode, but it's like there's a gray area. Actually, no. There's not really a gray area. There is a difference between having something be a kink and knowing that it's like role-playing fantasy and wanting something to be real in order to fulfill a desire. Yes, I agree. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And in the defense of Mayor Art, I will refrain from calling him Uncle Art. Uh, In the defense of Mayor Art, we don't actually find out which that is. So it could just be like, I don't know, like some people call their partner daddy. Right. We are very kink and sex positive here. But we are not pro-pedophilia. But we are not pro-pedophilia. At all. Whatsoever. There's a zero tolerance. Full stop. Yes. 100%. 
But that's not relevant to the plot at all, aside from being kind of creepy. It's cool, though, because he goes to jail after he becomes possessed and drowns his son while they're on a fishing trip. Ugh, I hate fishing. (laughs) And then brings his son home and puts his son in bed. The corpse of his son? Yes, the corpse of his son. His wife actually does not realize that his son is dead until another little boy who was on the fishing trip calls the sheriff and the sheriff shows up and goes to check and it's a dead body. And then the wife just like has a breakdown, obviously. Like you do. Yeah. The really sad part is like later in a moment of lucidity, Art does reveal that he was conscious the entire time, just could not control his body. So he had to like witness himself drowning his son. It's like when Elliot from The Magicians was possessed by the the person and he had to do all those bad things and witness it. We don't talk about The Magicians, peaches and plums. <laughs> if you don't get that, watch The Magicians and you will cry just as much as I did. It's a very good show. Another character that I want to talk about really quickly is Angie's ex-husband, Tyreek, after he becomes possessed because he goes on a rampage that includes but is not limited to killing someone, trying to kill Angie, writing threatening messages on the wall with his own feces, and getting high as a kite on cocaine and having sex with an underage girl in the back of his car. So basically all of this is to say that the demon is gnarly as shit. That is the moral of the story here. Quite literally. Yes. (laughs) God. Now you can just call me Max. Absolutely not. (laughs) Cut that shit right now. I can't believe I gave you that. There's really only one scene in the house where it feels truly like a haunted house scene, but if you've ever wondered how a massive animated pile of leaves could be threatening, your answer lies here while water is pouring down the walls and you see ghosts in the mirror. Wait, so the pile of leaves, like what, comes in from outside or something? No, it just kind of shows up. In the house? In the house. Oh. Perhaps you have a leak in your roof, ma'am. I never really was super into like jumping into leaf piles, even though I obviously grew up in the Midwest and they're... They were a thing, not like here where there are no seasons, but I was always just worried that there were going to be like creatures in the piles. I don't know. Bugs. Bugs. Dog poop. Dog poop. Yeah. Like all of that stuff. Like I didn't get Tariq's feces before he used it to ride on the wall. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It, It that's whenever I see something where it's like this good natured family with their kids like playing in the leaves in the yard. That's all I can think of is like. Ew. But here's the thing. I actually really enjoyed the plot of this book. And even though it's a very long book, I think it is definitely worth reading. So that's why I'm not spoiling it. I'll just tell it to you like while you're cooking dinner tonight. Because it was very well written. And for the most part, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I had one issue with this book. As people will eventually catch on to and may have already noticed and wondered why I haven't, I will probably never do a Stephen King book. And that is because, to be honest with you, I do not like Stephen King that much at all. I think that he is too wordy, and I think that he needs editing. But I think that his name is so big that they're just like, sure, Steve, you can do whatever you want. And this book was like that, but on a more tolerable scale. So the middle of this book, for me, started to drag along. Like, we were slowly peeling away more and more layers of the plot because it's actually really intricate and really well done. But, 
Like I wanted my horror fix and I wanted it immediately and not much spooky was happening in the middle. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if you're going to go for a horror story, you want a good amount of action and spooky and scary. You, I just feel like a slight adjustment to the pacing Mm would have done really well. Like the scariest thing that happened is she came home one day and there were some leaves in her tub and she was like, I don't know how these got here. So were the other scenes, because obviously people get killed and that kind of stuff happens, but is it done in like suspenseful manner or not really? So a lot of the killing happens off page, I guess. I want to say off screen, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like one of the murder scenes is like a fade to black and then another one where like Art kills his kid. You don't see it. You just like hear his testimony about it and stuff like that. Yeah. And even then, like, there's a really big chunk in the middle where, like, no one's killing anybody and no one's dying and not a lot of spooky stuff's happening. But Angela is, like, slowly solving the mystery. Yeah. It's good. And if I weren't walking into it, like, wanting this to be a horror book and, like, a haunted house book and have there be, like, some sort of, like, book equivalent of a jump scare... I would have enjoyed it a lot because I actually like when authors slowly kind of peel apart an intricate plot. It's just not what I walked in wanting. Yeah, I can understand that. That said, once the horror started, it was pretty intense. Like I said, it's not every day that a pile of leaves comes alive and tries to eat you. And the end of the book flew by for me compared to the middle, which I'm sure you remember I kind of struggled with. But at the end of the day, I'm actually really happy that I read it. I would give it four out of five rings engraved with mysterious symbols from West Africa. I just want a little bit more terror in the middle. No, it sounds good. And I'm sure I'll enjoy hearing about the rest of it, which normally at this point I would have already heard about the rest of it. But Cole's getting hungry, so we're doing that as I cook instead. I'm really fucking (laughs) hungry right now. (laughs) So we're finishing first, and then... We'll do that. I feel like people are going to see like the pictures of me on the Instagram and stuff because I am not a large man. No. And they're going to be afraid that you like starve me <laughs> or are like, I'm not going to feed you until you record this podcast. Because on an earlier one, I was like, I'm very hungry. We were talking about how I get ice cream after this as if I don't eat ice cream every day, which I do. But I made it sound like you were like withholding ice cream until I recorded. <laughs> It's like your treat. But anyway, in that vein, on that note, I'll go ahead and ask you, if you were in the good house, would you end up being killed? Honestly, who the fuck knows? I would like to think that I wouldn't because while it's not explicitly said, I think you have to actually visit this house at some point in order to be possessed. And a lot of people visited because they were friends with Angie, but I have no friends. And, like, the neighbor was keeping an eye on her property and wandered where he shouldn't have. And I pride myself in minding my own business. Or rather, I should say that I keep to myself and I enjoy the show when bullshit happens. So I'm going to say no, because I probably never would have actually set foot on this woman's property. Hmm. What about you? Would you die in Pumpkinhead? Um, it's hard to say because it depends who I am. But... Assuming I'm just one of the city kids, because that's probably the only person I could be in this movie, I guess I would have to say yes, because 
They essentially all get killed, even though, to be honest, unfairly, only one kid runs that kid over. But Ed makes this deal, I guess, with the vengeance demon to just kill all of them. Basically, five out of six of the city kids are killed, and only one of them is the one who actually did anything wrong. So I guess that's not like great odds. So I'd say chances are yes, but by the same token, I would never go dirt biking, period. But I certainly wouldn't go dirt biking in this unsafe manner and like run some kid over. I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, so I guess like that's my answer. It's probably just because everyone, all the city kids kind of die and um, I would probably be one of the city kids. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much for listening. And before we go, we actually have a favor to ask of you. Uh, I know that it is kind of rote to ask for feedback, but we are actually very curious because sometimes we focus on plot and sometimes we don't talk about much plot and we just talk about the more salacious scenes. And we are curious about what people like more. Yeah. Do you want to hear us kind of recap these movies and books? Would you mostly like us to save the spoilers and just focus on particularly strange, humorous, or interesting scenes? Uh, let us know. You know, shoot us an email. It's secondtodiepod at gmail.com. Or honestly, feel free to DM us on Instagram. Really, any way you want to contact us, we'll try to respond. Because, you know, we're new to this and we're just kind of getting into the swing of things and your opinion matters. We want to know what you want to hear, how you want to hear it. Also, in the same vein, you can suggest us books and movies to do. And just like last week, uh, we actually do take it seriously. And I will definitely get around to doing whatever you suggest. And um, Cole will probably read what you suggest, too. Except I have it mapped out like two months in advance because I get really excited with book lists. So it might (laughs) be a minute. If you do want to find us on social media, our Instagram and Twitter are both Second to Die Pod. You can also find me on Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. I always have posted what I am reading for the next week so you can read it too. And it can be like a book club, just the two of us. One of these days I'm going to figure out how to do like an actual group on Goodreads so that people can talk to each other and discuss and things but it's on my list <laughs> yeah and obviously like i said you can always email us to anything you want second to die pod at gmail.com also don't hesitate to like subscribe to all that kind of stuff it does help us out lets us know that people are listening and our instagram if i do say so myself is pretty cool you know we take all those pictures ourselves cole puts a lot of thought into them so and they're sure. all in and around our house as of right now, which I'm very proud of. They, they're in and around our house. Because quarantine. Yeah. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.